Amen. Great to see everybody here today. Another great group. Uh, just want to remind you that we do have extra parking down the street at the barbecue uh, restaurant or on the grass at the back uh, here. Uh, but uh, great singing today. Great songs. I could have just uh, continued singing the whole time. We really don't even... Yeah. There you go. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, we don't really need a sermon, but don't get your hopes up. We're going to have one. So... Um, so uh, Nehemiah chapter 6 is where we are today, and if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to, uh, to go ahead and turn there. Um, according to one researcher, there's over a thousand people mentioned in the Bible that we might call leaders. Uh, this researcher did a 13-year study and analyzed over 900 of them, and in the process, he was able to reduce the number to about 100 that he considered prominent leaders, you know, famous, if you will. And then after further examination, he really came to narrow that list to about 49 that we can tell from the biblical record how they finished. And so looking at those 49, he classified them into four kinds of finishers. He said, first of all, there are those who were cut off early, either through assassination or martyrdom or somehow they were overthrown, but we really don't know how they ended because through no fault of their own they were cut off. And then there's a second group that finished poorly according to the biblical record. They were going downhill in the latter part of their life. And then there's a third group that sort of finished so-so. In other words, they didn't have any kind of catastrophic moral failure or make any poor decisions or anything, but you know they did what they could and should have done. They just never really accomplished God's purpose in their lives. So he classified those as finishing so-so. But the fourth category is those who finish strong. They walked with God until their last day. Their faith remained strong. They were close to the Lord. They finished strong. And in finishing strong, of course, they had to deal with ambushes and distractions and trials and difficulties, but they kept the faith, and they finished strong. You know, uh, one of the things that really saddens me the older I get is uh, I'm old enough now to see some faithful men and women of the faith who it seems like more and more often are not finishing strong. I can think of two examples of men that I know that I've uh, worked with, uh, that I admired, one of whom is with the Lord now, the other is uh, in his mid to late 80s, and both of them uh, went off the reservation here in, toward the end of their life. One of them began teaching uh, that really bad Christians, if they don't do a good job in their Christian life, are going to end up being tormented and tortured for a thousand years where they're weeping and gnashing their teeth. But don't worry, after that they get to come out and go to heaven. Kind of a Christian purgatory. It's called, uh, the, the view is called kingdom exclusion. <laughs> and it's just nowhere taught in scripture. It's really a, a heretical view. And and this guy started teaching it. He's with the Lord now, so he's changed his view. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, then the other one, uh, who's still living, and I respect, but he's, uh, he started teaching kind of the opposite view, that unbelievers, when they die, go to immediately to hell to be tormented, as Scripture plainly teaches. But they don't, they're only there for a short time, that eventually they just cease to exist, and they're not tormented day and night forever and ever exactly like the Scripture says uh, they are. So... I've told Wendy, you know, I, the older I get, I'm, I'm kind of worried. I'm like, if you ever see me going off the reservation, please shoot me before I start teaching anything that, that bad. Um, 
So the question on the table today is, what kind of finisher are you? When it came to the burden that God put on his heart, building the wall, Nehemiah was a strong finisher. Uh, as you know, we've been studying the book of Nehemiah. The, the time frame is 445 B.C., about 450, closer to 500 years before Christ began his earthly ministry. And uh, the, the Jewish people had started returning to their homeland in, in, in various uh, waves. And Nehemiah was told about the, the wall being torn down and the city being dilapidated and, and defenseless. And he was really burdened about it. In fact, we read in chapter 1 how he wept about it and he prayed about it. And God put it on his heart to help lead a rebuilding project. And so uh, this is what he did. And we come to the place today in our text where he finishes the wall. And so uh, I want us to just take a look at these five passages, I mean these five verses real quick, and bring us up to speed of where we are in our study of Nehemiah. But then I'm going to do something a little different, and that is I'm going to kind of shift gears uh, from an exposition of these five verses into a theology, if you will, of finishing. What does it mean uh, to finish? So if we look at verse 15, uh, we read, The wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. So only 52 days after this construction had begun, the project was done. It's quite a testimony to the faithfulness of God's people and, of course, to Nehemiah's strategic leadership. The month of Elul is equivalent to August and early September. If you remember from chapter 1, uh, Nehemiah had first heard about the problem in the Jewish month of Kislev, which is November-December, the previous November-December, so now it's August-September. Uh, in March of April, after hearing about it, he presented his plan to the king. If you remember, we read about that in chapter 2. And then he came to Jerusalem. Well, that trip took two or three months. In fact, his trip to Jerusalem ended up taking longer than it did to actually finish the project itself. But here we are in August-September, the same time frame that we find ourselves in the present day. And they finished the wall. It was a triumph of focus and concentration against all kinds of distractions. And by the way, the, the book is not is far from over. There's a lot more to come in the book of Nehemiah, as we shall see in the weeks to come. But the best answer to opposition and difficulty and trials is to fulfill the job, to do God's will, to finish the task so that others we'll see God's power. And that's exactly what happened. As we read about in verse 16, it happened when all of the enemies heard that they had finished the wall, that the nations around us saw these things. They were very disheartened in their own eyes. Does it ever stop to occur to you that, that, that the enemy doesn't like it when God gets the glory? The enemy doesn't like it when we finish a job that God has for us uh, to do. They viewed the, the rapid success and completion of this wall as, as, as evidence that God was helping these workers. And of course, they hated God, like Satan hates God today. But it says they perceived that the work was done by God. And, and when we finish strong, it brings God glory. And then in verse 17, old Tobiah, who, who, who's a preeminent enemy there of uh, Nehemiah, comes up again and again. We've already talked a lot about him, but he is an unrelenting thorn in Nehemiah's side. Anybody have one of those? I'm not asking for names. I'm just, do you have one? Of course we do. In those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah. And the letters of Tobiah came uh, to them. Uh, this was basically gossip, if you will. Um, 
And the situation was this. So Tobiah, by marriage, was related to a lot of the people in Jerusalem at that time that were building the wall. And so he was able to uh, manipulate those relationships and cause problems because he did not share God's desire to, to finish this wall. He was not on God's side. He was out of fellowship with God may not have even been a believer. And he had considerable influence on a lot of the people that were helping Nehemiah with this project. Uh, many Jews that were loyal to Tobiah and perhaps even had contracts with him in the project, they kept telling Nehemiah good things about Tobiah. I mean, you can just kind of picture this. It's, it's quintessential gossip. They would go to Nehemiah, oh, Tobiah, he's great. Look what he did. And he did this and he did this, trying to prop up Tobiah. At the same time, Tobiah secretly is sending these letters to Nehemiah directly, threatening him and discouraging him. And, uh, but nevertheless, Nehemiah got the job done, and it was a job well done. And uh, we'll pick up uh, next week with chapter 7 and begin to look at what happens next now that this wall project is complete. There is still a lot of work to do with the people of God. But I want to do something a little different. I'm going to kind of do some systematic theology this morning. Systematic theology, uh, you know, there are two kind of branches. If you go to seminary, uh, actually there's more than that, but two primary branches. You can either study what's called Bible exposition, where you study every book of the Bible verse by verse. I, I did that as well. And you study it in its literal gra grammatical historical context. But then in my advanced degree, I, I studied systematic theology, which is when you begin to connect the dots and you say, what does the Bible say about a particular subject? And you, you compare one verse with another verse. And, and whenever you do that, you're doing systematic theology. So if you read your Bible and you have a study Bible and it's got cross references in that center column margin and you, you're reading a verse and you see the little footnote and you go, Oh, let me go look at this verse, and then you go from that verse to another verse. Did you know you're doing systematic theology? That's the process of theological synthesis, comparing Scripture with Scripture. And so as I thought about how Nehemiah finished the wall, I thought, I wonder what the Bible says about finishing. And sure enough, you can do this with any topic. What does the Bible say about fill in the blank? It says quite a bit about finishing. So I'm calling this sort of a biblical theology of finishing, if you will, and and we're going to touch on all kinds of areas of, of, uh, of classic systematic theology. It relates to salvation, to our progressive sanctification. It relates to redemption and justification and glorification and, and, and even a little bit of eschatology, which we will see at the end. So the question we're considering here is, are you finishing? Are you finishing? And I'm going to break it down in using the six common interrogatives in English, what, why, how, who, when, and where, all right? So let's start with the first question. What are you finishing? What are you finishing? You know, everybody goes through life striving for something. Acceptance, contentment, uh, value, peace, maybe notoriety. What are you striving for? What are you striving to accomplish? What is your goal? What are you trying to finish? Now, if you're trying to accomplish or to finish your eternal salvation, you're wasting your time. I'm just here to tell you. You've missed the point. The work to accomplish your salvation has already been finished. All you have to do is receive the free gift. Jesus already did the work. 
Jesus in John chapter 4 said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you realize Jesus, the eternal Son of God, came to the earth with a job to do? Uh, he said in John 5, I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to what? To finish the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. He's talking about John the Baptist there. He said, God sent me to finish a job. God sent me to work. Well, what was that work? What was that job? Paul tells us Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's Jesus' work, to save the lost, as Mike just prayed about a moment ago. Jesus uh, came to save the people from their sins. That's Jesus' work. Uh, to save sinners. Jesus himself said, I, I didn't come to call the righteous, those who are self-righteous, they, they think they've got it all together, they've dotted all their I's and crossed all their T's, they, the ones that are working to accomplish their salvation. I'm not here for them. I'm for calling sinners to repentance. And indeed, again and again throughout Jesus' ministry, we see this contrast between those that were thinking they could accomplish their own salvation by being good enough by being righteous enough versus those who in in simple humility come to Christ and say I'm not worthy I'm not worthy and and I need your righteousness instead of anything I can do on my own what are you trying to finish well let's see how how Jesus did how did he do with this job that the father had given him of course we know the famous passage on the cross John 19:13 Jesus cried out what it is finished. It's, it's the Greek word telestai. You've probably heard pastors talk about this word. It's a Greek word that means it has been and forever will remain finished. It's done. The price has been paid. Salvation is accomplished. He's purchased eternal life with his own blood by paying the sin penalty. In Greek, it's perfect passive indicative. It means it's, it's, a, it's permanent, it's ongoing. It, it has been and forever will remain finished. So you say, well, if that's the case, well, how come everybody doesn't just go to heaven, right? The work's done. He's paid for salvation. He purchased it. How come we're not universalists and everybody goes to heaven? Well, not so fast. Because just because the, the gift has been purchased uh, doesn't mean everybody accepts that gift. See, a gift by definition, has to be accepted. You can't force it on anybody. In the same way that we weren't forced to sin, we had free will. Adam and Eve chose to eat the forbidden fruit. We have, to, we have free will either to accept or reject the gift. And a gift rejected is no longer yours. It's not yours, right? So you have to accept the gift, but you don't work for it. So if you're trying to finish your salvation, you've missed the point. Uh, so Jesus, just hours before he was betrayed, in his famous prayer, he's talking to God the Father, and he says, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. He knew that within hours he would be walking up that Via Dolorosa, be crowned with thorns, and be crucified on a Roman cross for the sins of the world. Too many people spend their lives trying to finish something that is already done. The writer of Hebrews says, Jesus Christ with his own blood entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained 
eternal redemption. Stop trying to do what's already been done. See, this is the age-old struggle. The pride of men and women is so powerful and so strong, and it rears its ugly head so many times that it makes us think we can, cannot possibly get something as valuable as eternal life for free. But that's exactly the testimony of Scripture. That's what grace is all about. We cannot work for our own salvation. The Bible says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works lest anyone should boast. See, if we could work for our own salvation, if we could finish or accomplish our own eternal salvation, then we'd be boasting. And we might say, well, I'm way better than him, or I'm way better than her, or I might not be perfect, but I'm certainly way ahead of them. And we start to play this comparison game. Well, guess what? Heaven isn't gained by grading on a curve. <laughs> It's not like an SAT test. You've heard me say this before. It doesn't matter if you're in the 99th percentile because Jesus said you've got to be perfect just like God himself is perfect, Matthew 5, 48. And so no matter how much work you do, you're just spinning your wheels. Uh, in fact, Paul put it this way in Galatians. He said, a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Because by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Titus 3.5, not by works of righteousness which we have done. That's the, the foundational theme verse for our ministry now that we started in 1999, not by works ministries. It's not by works. It's not by works. In fact, in fact Paul kind of contrasts the problem of works versus grace. He says, to him who works, then what are you earning? What are the wages? Well, you're just accumulating more debt. It's counterintuitive. The harder you work to finish something that's not yours to finish, then the more impossible it becomes. Uh, if to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But by contrast, to him who does not work, again, there it is, not by works, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, faith. <laughs> then it's your faith that credits you with righteousness. It's by faith that we receive that free gift. He, said, he goes on to say, if it's by grace, then it's no longer works. Because otherwise, grace is no longer grace. If it's by works, then it's no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer works. See, grace and works don't mix. And you cannot work to finish or accomplish your own salvation. So what are you finishing? Jesus said, the moment you believed in him, you shall never perish. It's done. Now, again, if you've never trusted in Christ, then you're, you're still in the predicament and unsold under sin and, and facing the penalty of sin in a Christless eternity. But if you've done what the Bible tells you to do 160 times if you want to have eternal life, and that is trusted in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation... Jesus said, you'll never perish. That means you'll never perish. In fact, in Greek, it's actually a double negative. It's you shall no never perish. You shall never, ever, ever perish forever. That's basically what he's Amen. saying. Jesus said, the moment you believe in me, you've passed from death to life and shall never come into judgment. In a more theological sense, 
Paul describes the fact that once you've been justified, which means declared righteous by faith, in other words, you've received Christ by faith, the gift, then you've already been glorified. Past tense, actually aorist tense in Greek, uh, which is interesting because, you know, you know, I know what you're probably thinking. You're looking at me and you're going, that guy does not look glorified. And you're right. <laughs> and by the way, same to you. <laughs> we don't look glorified, right? These bodies are not glorified. So why does the Bible say we're glorified? Because it's finished. It's done. The moment you place your faith in Christ, you are as good as glorified. Now, we have to live out our days. We're going to talk about that in a second. What are we trying to finish? What should we be trying to finish? Uh, so we still have to live out our days on this earth. We won't receive our glorified bodies till heaven. But it's as good as done. That's why Paul goes on to say, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also get freely give us all things? Notice, freely. It's free. If it wasn't free, then why did Jesus have to die on the cross? If we could pay for it ourselves, we didn't need a Savior. See, Jesus really did, as the old hymn says, pay it all, right? Most people sing that old hymn. Of course, they don't anymore because old hymns have kind of gone out of fashion. But, but uh, yeah, we do it here, yeah. But, uh, you know, they sing Jesus paid it all, but what they are really doing is living their lives as if Jesus paid most of it. And they've got to contribute something to get to that finish line. Stop trying to finish your eternal salvation. And instead, focus on living out your days Serving the Lord to the glory of God. And that leads us to our second question. Why are you finishing? In other words, why should you do good works then? You know, if your home in heaven is secure, why do we live for Christ? Why not eat, drink, and be merry? Right? What is our motivation? Why are you finishing? And I think one of the reasons that the Lord put this angle on my heart for this message today is because the last couple of weeks... I've just fielded a lot of questions from folks at Not By Works Ministries who just can't seem to understand grace. Uh, you know, they, they just, they think somehow by promoting the freeness of salvation, the way the Bible does, that somehow that's going to encourage people to sin. One person uh, wrote me a, a lengthy letter just saying, you know, my, my uh, brother, I think it was, he's a believer, but he's living in sin today. And, you know, if he hears your messages, He's going to think there's nothing wrong with that. Well, I don't know what messages of mine she's hearing, because I definitely say there's a problem with sin. Sin is never good. It leads to great unpleasantness. It will cause serious problems. It is awful. And in case she's listening today, let me go on the record. I'm against sin, okay? It's bad. Sin, bad, right? Godliness, good. There, got that covered. In the context, what I'm talking about is your sin can never undo what God's already finished, right? So that being the case, why should we do good works then, right? Uh, and that's the question that comes up a lot. It's almost as if people think that by emphasizing our security in Christ, somehow that's going to make everybody just want to run out and, and sin, <laughs> which is not only unbiblical, it's also illogical. I mean, all kinds of studies have been done to show this, but security doesn't promote recklessness. It enhances proper behavior, right? You know, we've had the privilege of taking multiple 
uh, through the years, ministry cruises. I know really suffering for the Lord, but, uh, you know, uh, 10 or 11, maybe more times. And, you know, if you've ever been on a cruise, I'm sure some of you have that, you know, they, they begin the cruise before you leave the port with a, 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 t a time where they do an exercise to remind you, you know, in case of a problem, here's the lifeboats, here's the life jackets, you, you gather at the muster stations and one of the attendants kind of tells you what to do. So everybody knows there's life preservers and lifeboats, but you know what, in all of our cruises, I've never seen a single person randomly put on a life jacket and jump overboard. Never done it. The presence of the life preservers are there to strengthen you and to make you think, I'm going to really enjoy this trip because, you know, I, I have nothing to worry about. And that's the way salvation is. It doesn't promote or engender sin. It strengthens our faith. Uh, we don't live righteously because we have something to prove to ourselves or to others. We practice righteousness because that's the natural, normal, healthy thing uh, for believers to do, for reborn people to do. Uh, am I, did I lose my sound? No, you're good. Okay. So when a Christian sins, it's unnatural. It's unhealthy. That's not who we are in Christ. The born of God part of us, the new nature, never produces sin. When we sin, it's that old man rearing his head, right? You can never say, oh, boy, look what the Holy Spirit made me do today, right? But you can say, boy, look what the flesh tempted me to do. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. We're not saved by faith and then sanctified by works. And yes, that's the way a lot of people live their lives. They think, okay, I'm saved by faith. I've received Christ. But now I'm going to just have to work hard to just somehow measure up. But that's not it at all. We are, we are sanctified, meaning we grow progressively like Christ, by living out the man who's within us, by remembering who we are. Why do you do what you do? What's your motivation? Paul put it this way in Galatians 3. He said, are you so foolish that having begun in the Spirit, you're now going to be made perfect by the flesh? Now, perfect there doesn't mean what you and I might think it means. In fact, there are two words for perfect in Greek. This isn't even the most common one. What is he saying here? The word perfect in Greek is actually the word epitaleo, and guess what it means? To finish, to complete. So what he's saying, if we go back to Galatians 3.3, is having been saved by grace through faith and born again spiritually as a free gift by trusting Christ, are you now going to try to finish your life by living the rest of your life operating in the strength of your flesh? Are you going to try to work your way through life, somehow trying to prove something that's already been accomplished? Why are you trying to please God? God's already forgiven you. How many of your sins at the moment you placed your faith in Christ were yet future? All of them, right? I mean, you'd, some of them were in the past, but did he just save you for the ones in the past? And now if you sin again, all of a sudden, he didn't mean it when he said, I give you eternal life. Can, can your sin undo yourself? Absolutely not. How many of your sins from the moment of Calvary when Jesus said it is finished were yet future? All of them. Every one of them. So our sin cannot undo what, what Christ did for us. So we don't live our lives trying to be accepted before a holy God. Rather, as Paul said in chapter 2 of Galatians, We've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives. It's Christ who lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live how? By faith. You're saved by faith, and you live your life by faith. Paul said we walk by faith, not by sight. As believers, we have a new motivation. See, 
We've come to Christ empty-handed and said, I'm a sinner and I cannot save myself. I want what you've already paid for. I'm going to trust in you for that free gift. But then we now become part of the family of God and we've joined a race. And, and we want to be able to, to say with Paul, as he's talking to the Ephesian elders here from Miletus on his third missionary journey, and he says, you know, with many tears and trials that have happened to me on this journey, none of these things move me. I do not count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy. So what are we trying to finish? We're trying to finish our life, and we want to finish well. Not about heaven or hell. We only get one go-round on this, this earth. And we want to live it well for the glory of God to make a difference in this world. Paul understood that. He said from his jail cell in, in, uh, in Rome, he said, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. What prize is he talking about? Heaven? Absolutely not. He was more certain than anyone of his eternal salvation. He said, I know whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. He understood he was a believer and so should we. That's not what he was striving for. His goal was the prize, which he talks about in 1 Corinthians 9, uh, talking about a crown. He said, you know, we want to run in such a way to obtain it. We talked about this a few weeks ago. We don't want to stand before the Bema seat and be disqualified, where, Paul's, where, the, where the Lord says, you know what, you didn't, that, that action wasn't done in faithfulness with purity of heart. You were selfish motives, and so I'm not going to reward you for that. We want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. What is the motivation? Why are you finishing? Paul said to Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. And he goes on to say, keep this commandment without spot. That's the fight that he's talking about. When? How long? Until the Lord Jesus Christ appear it. See, that's our task. Not as if we have something to prove to God or to us. That's, that issue is settled. But out of the glory of the Lord. Jesus talked about the cost of of salvation, uh, I mean the cost of discipleship, to believers. He's talking to his disciples here who are already saved, and he says, count the cost. Now, many Bible teachers will say that's how you have to get saved. you got to know what you're getting into. you got to bring something to the table. you got to know what it's going to cost you. You know, you can't go to heaven if you're not following Christ. That's not at all the context here. He's talking about discipleship, talking to believers. See, there's nothing to count when it comes to our salvation. You know, when someone gives you a gift, you don't go, wow, thanks, that's great. Now, can I have your wallet? I'd like to see how much you spent on that gift, right? Now, we know the cost of our salvation is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But that's not ours to count. He counted the cost, as we said. He came to the earth to do the will of the Father, and he did it flawlessly. But we don't have to count the cost. There's no cost to salvation. It's free. It's free. So what are the biblical motivations for the believer to do good works? We're not going to go through these. I just wanted to put them on the screen. Just for those who say, well, if you emphasize grace, then nobody's going to know to do good. They're all just going to live like the devil the rest of their life. Not true at all. You know that's not true in your own heart. I mean, how many of you in this room are believers... And, and yet, are you out there living profligate lives of debauchery? No. Some do. Some quench the Spirit. Some grieve the Spirit. Some resist the Spirit. They walk in the flesh. That's unhealthy. It's wrong. It's disobedient. And it comes with great consequences. 
one of which is not hell. But the, most believers understand what it's like to, to, to cater to the Spirit. And that Spirit of God is always there convicting and leading and prodding and reminding and showing you what's right. The law written on our hearts, the Bible says. And uh, again, you can quench that Spirit, and the more you quench it, the harder it is to hear the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit the next time. But just look at some of these motivations. In the back of my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong, I have 30, and it's by no means comprehensive. And I'm not going to go through all of these at once. This might be a good sermon series sometime, actually. But uh, just let me just cherry-pick a few of these. Why should the believer do good works? Well, first of all, it brings glory to God. The same God who saves you, you can glorify Him and honor Him. When someone does something for you, you want to affirm them. It demonstrates your love for God. It's a way of expressing gratitude. It pleases the Father. It maintains that intimacy with Christ and gives you that abundant life that Jesus talked about in John 10.10. It allows you to look forward to the rapture with confidence, 1 John 2.28. It also sets a good example for others, right? You need some motivation. By the way, it's not like all of these are always motivating us at the same time, depending on our walk and our journey and our station of life, some of these might resonate more than others. But you need a good motivation. Think about all the young people that are watching you. There's a motivation to do what's right. Think about the fact that it can lead others to salvation, right? Uh, you know, uh, you've heard me say before, there are two reasons generally why people are not saved. They've never trusted Christ. Why is that? Well, in one case, maybe they've never met a Christian to share the gospel with them. In another case, maybe they've met too many Christians, and they say, I don't want that. I hope that's not the case for your testimony. I hope you're drawing others to salvation. There's a motivation. It grows, you grow spiritually mature. I mean, you know, the more you get to know the Lord and fall in love with His Word and, and live out the, the righteousness that He's given you, the more rich your faith becomes. James talks about a richness to the faith. Uh, you know, it'll prolong your life. There's a good motivation. You know, sin will kill you. So you need a motivation. Just remember 1 John. There is sin that leads to death, or Proverbs, or many other passages. Sin is an equal opportunity to kill you, a killer. It, it, it won't send you to hell if you've already been paid for, if you've already received the payment on your behalf. But it'll sure take your physical life. So you want to meet Jesus sooner? Wallow around in sin. See how that goes. That's a motivation. That's a biblical motivation. It's not a fear tactic. You know what a fear tactic is? You better straighten up or you're going to hell. You know, you, if, or you better straighten up or you're not really saved. Or as I look at your life and, and, and no Christian would do that, you must not be saved. That's fear. And that's unbiblical. Uh, it's you know, it, it's going to bring rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. It's going to help defeat the enemy. It's going to make good use of your time. It's going to silence the critics of Christianity. Just look at some of these. It'll help you pass the test and be approved by God at the judgment seat where you will hear, well done, good and faithful a servant. Or it's going to prevent further stumbling. See, sin begets sin. Godliness begets godliness. The more you cater to the Spirit and hear the Spirit and resist the flesh the stronger you become in your faith. But guess what? The opposite is true. The more you quench the Spirit and walk in the flesh and wallow around in sin, the harder it is to hear that voice of the Spirit. So many motivations. But most people try to live their lives based on four common false motivations. They say, well, I've got to do good works in order to get into heaven when I die. That's no life. 
That's trying to finish something that's not yours to finish. That's spinning your wheels. And sadly, the vast majority of people on planet Earth have been taught through false religions and, and misinformation from within Christianity that that's the order of business for every human being. Just work hard, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, stay after it, and if you're lucky, when you die, you'll go to heaven. That's not a biblical motivation at all. Or, I must do good works in order to keep from losing my salvation. Some people will give lip service to grace and salvation by faith, but then they say, but if you don't keep on keeping on, God's going to take it away from you. We've already talked about how it's finished, it's complete, it's eternal, it can never be lost. Right? And then this is where most people are, sadly. They think, well, I've got to do good works in order to prove that I'm truly saved. I don't even like that word, truly, because it has no business being in front of saved. You're either saved or you're not, and you know it, right? You don't have to really, really, really believe the gospel to get into heaven. And if you just really believe it, well, that's not good enough. <laughs> you either believe it or you don't. It's a zero-sum game. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation? Guess what? More than 160 times the Bible says if you have, you're going to heaven. Period. Full stop. It's a one-time moment in time. Our salvation isn't a bilateral contract where we've got to sign on the dotted line and then keep our commitments all the way to the end. And if we don't, then all bets are off. We're going to hell. That's not grace. Grace is a free gift paid for by the blood of Christ. And yet so many people are trying to finish what Christ has already finished. They're trying to do good works in order to prove that they're truly saved. This email that I got from this person said, I, you know, if he keeps, if my brother keeps on sinning, uh, and he was really away from the Lord, it sounds like from the letter, then maybe he wasn't truly saved. Well, he's either saved or he's not. If he's not saved, it has nothing to do with his behavior. If he's not saved, it's because he's never trusted in Christ and received the free gift. See, Christians can commit any sin that an unbeliever can commit if they cater to the flesh. I don't recommend it, but it's possible. Uh, or some people say, I've got to do good works or God's not going to love me. And they've been conditioned maybe because of their earthly journey that somehow they've got to earn love. And so they just don't feel the Father's precious love. And so they, they go through life working hard, trying to gain the love of the Father. Well, guess what? As we read a moment ago in Romans 8.32, he can't demonstrate his love any more than sending his very own son to take your place on the cross. That's not enough to show you how much he loves you. And then Paul goes on to say, and along with him, he's going to freely give you everything else. What else is, you think it's any big deal to God to give you love even in the midst of your sinful rebellion sometimes? He's already sent his son as the sacrifice for the sins of the world. You don't have to work for God's love. So the third question then is, how will you finish? How are you going to finish? Uh, will you be able to say with Paul, when you find yourself knocking on death's door like he did, I have finished the, faith, the race, I have kept the faith. See, Paul could say that. But in the same letter, just two chapters earlier, he talks about what happens if you don't keep the faith. He says, what if you stop believing? Apistuo, in Greek it's a verb, no faith, I have no more faith. What if someone stops believing? You know what Paul says? He says, God remains faithful to that person because he cannot deny himself. 
See, Christ lives within you. You are a child of God. You're adopted into the family of God. And even if we go so far as to not keep the faith, to depart from the faith, we're still God's child. And again, I'm not recommending that. And if you look at the motivations that I just talked about in detail, you're going to see that the Spirit of God is working with the Word of God to motivate us to live out godly lives. It goes better. You know, James says, those that are doers of the Word will be blessed. You want to be blessed? Stop sinning. <laughs> Live for the Lord. You know, keep short accounts. Uh, listen to that voice of the Spirit. But the reason it's such a, a cyclical, defeatist you know, mindset for most people is they've been taught incorrectly that they've got to prove they're really saved. That if they sin too much or get too far away from the Lord or, heaven forbid, they stop believing, then, then that's going to mean they're not really saved. And, and it doesn't work that way. Um, so at death's door, are you going to be able to say, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith? Or what about the rapture? You know, if the rapture happens before you die, will you be confident and not ashamed before him at his coming? How are you going to finish? And then we might ask, who will help you finish? Because we have an incredible example in God's Son and our Savior. He's been there. Follow his example. Hebrews 12 says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And what? Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, he does not say, run hard or you won't get into heaven. You better give it all you got or you're going to end up in hell. He's talking to believers. And there is a race, the race of life. From the moment you become born again in, in Christ by faith until you die or the rapture happens, that window of time is what we're talking about here. We have one life to live, not to sound like a soap opera, some of you kids don't even know what a soap opera is. But anyway, uh, we have one life to live. We have a, we have a job to do. And, 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 and listen to how the writer of Hebrews says we should do it. He doesn't just tell us to do it. He gives us some instruction on how. Looking unto Jesus, the author and what? Finisher. See, this is a theology of finishing that we're talking about this morning. And Jesus purchased our salvation on the cross. And what did he say? It is finished. So we look to him as the example who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. The writer of Hebrews earlier had said we don't have a high priest, that's Jesus, who can sympathize, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. So therefore in light of that let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace in time of need. See, we are saved by grace initially at a one-time moment in time when we place our faith in Jesus for eternal life. But we're also sustained by grace as we live out our lives and trust Him. Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the key. It's not your own effort, your, not your own self-will, your own willpower. So many Christians struggle. I'm going to stop doing this, or I'll never do that again, or I'm going to start doing this. And it's one failed resolution after another. But until you begin to recognize who you are in Christ, 
which the Bible uses many metaphors for that, new man, old man, slave, or free slave, you know, these kinds of things, you know, flesh, spirit, faith, sight, light, darkness, until you understand who you are as a child of the king, and you go, I don't have to live like that anymore. I can live like who I am, and I, and I want to do that, because I don't have a whole lot of time to do it, Right? Someday, because of what Jesus did for me at the cross, I'm going to spend eternity in heaven. And I want to make my life now count. That's what Jesus meant when he said, count the cost. I want to leave a legacy. I want to make a difference both now and in eternity. So when will you finish? Just a practical question here. You know, uh, there are two options when it comes to timing. And let me challenge you, don't quit before you finish. Don't quit before you finish. Uh, for, for many, you will finish when you die. That's what the Bible says. Revelation 14, 13. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. From now on, yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. That's when the job's done. That's when you're going if to... You, if the Lord doesn't come back in your lifetime and you go the way of all flesh, that's when you're finished. So that's the timing. Until then, keep serving the Lord right? It's appointed unto men once to die, and after that the judgment. Uh, Solomon put it this way, all go to one place, all are from the dust, and all return to dust. So for most of us, we're going to finish when we die, but the more I study the setting of the stage and, 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 and geopolitical events and study Bible prophecy, the more I realize that for many, for, for some of us, and it could very well be us, we will finish at the rapture. Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep. Not everybody's going to have to die. But we shall all be changed. We'll finish for us, for those that are alive at the rapture, when we meet the Lord in the air. We're caught up together to meet Him in the air. Don't quit before you finish. Now, we don't know the future. I don't know what the future holds for any of us in this room. I mean, I could hit by a, a bus on the way home from church today, and uh, then I'll see you in heaven. Um, that, by the way, I, I think I've mentioned this before, that's how the, the Lord used the gospel message to convict me of my need for a Savior as a young six-year-old boy. Uh, grew up in a church home, and the, always in church, and the pastor always was passionate about the gospel, and he would always say, if you get hit by a bus on the way home, are you ready to meet your Maker? And so, uh, to this day, I have a morbid fear of buses, but uh, <laughs> that night, uh, after saying that one time, it really took hold, and I, I told my dad, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. I don't want to spend eternity in hell. And, and I trusted in Christ in that moment. Uh, so, we'll finish either at death or when we meet the Lord in the air. And then the, the question that I want you to think about as we leave today is, where will you finish? Make it personal. See, we're all just passing through. Eternity is, is, is the ultimate finishing place for everyone. And in my theology of finishing, I discovered that when time shall be no more, God's going to say what? It is done. <laughs> What's done? Time. The Bible comes full circle from before time began, when God spoke the world into existence, and twice the New Testament talks about before time began. Time began roughly 6,000 years ago when God spoke the world into existence in six literal 24-hour days. And there will come a time when time shall be no more. Kind of strange to say it that way, but uh, 
and he's going to say, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. What's that? The beginning and the end, right? The first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. It's a, it's a metaphor. And so he says, I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to whoever thirsts. So where will you finish? If you've never accepted that free water of life, uh, which is just a, a poetic way of expressing eternal life, you need to do that today. Stop trying to finish what's not yours to finish. It's already been paid for. The job's already done. You just need to accept the payment on your behalf. And once you do that, rest in the new life that you have in Christ and spend the rest of your time on this earth, however long that may be, serving the Lord Jesus for His honor and glory. So that's a theology of finishing. Pretty simple. What are you finishing? I hope you're not trying to finish your salvation because that's already done. Why are you finishing? I hope you have the right motivation. How will you finish? Finish strong. Look to Christ as your example. Be faithful unto death or the rapture. And make sure that you know the Lord. So that's the takeaway. The takeaway is in the title this morning. Finish strong. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together this morning. It's uh, it's just so encouraging to see that your Bible doesn't leave us wondering, doesn't leave us dangling. There are no loose ends. We know how it ends. And I pray that each one of us, uh, within the sound of my voice today, would, would finish strong. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.